0: Thanks for tuning in to another edition of How To Bay Area. Just a quick note before the program really gets going. This edition on coronavirus was put out originally in mid-February, so a lot of what we're going to be talking about here is going to be fairly dated The really dated stuff, though, is all at the beginning. Later in the program, we began an interview that is focused on mental resiliency, as well as steps that can be taken to combat some of the uglier sides of the coronavirus response, including a lot of racist attacks that we've heard reported on uh, fairly consistently. All of that Still very relevant. So if you only want to listen to that portion, skip ahead to minute 13. That's where that interview is going to be started, just a little bit after minute 13. Either way, hope you find this program useful. Here it is, How To Bay Area. Thanks for listening. Coronavirus. The mysterious new disease spreading through much of China continues to pop up in ones and twos in countries around the world. Here in the Bay Area, there have also been cases, but so far, the number of people infected can still be counted on just one hand, and all of them appear to have been isolated before they had a chance to spread the illness more widely. Spreading faster though? Fear about the illness
4: but it is not true that there is a fine, but if I, as the health officer, my other sort of
0: powers... So, residents had a lot of questions ready to go when they turned out for an informational workshop on coronavirus organized recently by the Oakland Chinatown Chamber of Commerce.
3: I I think, you know, the the fear uh, level actually was uh, quite high.
0: That's Carl Chan, the chamber's president, and the fear he's talking about has oftentimes been directed against Asian Americans. And also, as he points out, their businesses.
3: Many people were so concerned, you know, is that going to be safe uh, coming to Chinatown or patronizing, you know,
0: the Chinese businesses? If I do that and someone
1: violates, there are other, I can work with law enforcement... And actually...
0: During the workshop, yeah, attendees heard from Alameda some County some health, health officials, of oil officials oil who helped debunk widely circulated online rumors. We rumors suggesting that the illness is already spreading through Oakland Chinatown. But
3: of course, we know that it's not true.
0: It's not. All the same, though, the fear is keeping people away, and that's leading to substantial losses for these businesses.
3: Many of them are claiming, you know, it's between 50 to 75 percent, and which is huge.
0: Huge and, as we've been hearing, completely unnecessary. Luckily, though, that workshop aimed at dispelling these rumors, well, it seems like it kind of worked.
3: After the workshop, I think people are having much more
0: confidence. Confidence, that is, about returning to Chinatown. Now, all of this goes to show, we may not yet have a cure for the coronavirus, but we do have one for misconceptions. And that would be knowledge. And when it comes to knowledge, well, you came to just about the right place. Welcome to the program, I'm Keith Mancone and this is How To Bay Area, the show that explains how to get stuff done in the San Francisco Bay Area. On this edition, we're taking on how to respond to the coronavirus. So open up wide and say ah, we're going to be dosing out 40 cc's of medical grade knowledge on everything coronavirus related. For the first dose, we'll be hearing from two Bay Area health experts who have been working to prevent the spread of
1: the illness. All estimates on whether or not this virus will spread globally to become a pandemic are really a prediction.
0: Then in the second half of the program, a dose of common sense as we consider how to react to our own overreactions.
5: I think we should try to shut down rumors and conspiracy theories about the transmission of the virus
0: all that just ahead on how to bay area all right let's start with some basic facts as of the posting of this podcast in mid-february five people have been treated for coronavirus in the greater bay area two who tested positive in santa clara county two more from san benito county and then there's one more that we just learned about very recently Someone who tested positive in Japan was quarantined on a cruise ship, imagine that, and is now being treated in Napa County. And there we go, that's it, just five. And as we've said, all of them have remained isolated. So a small number in the grand scheme of things, but still far higher than any other region in the country, aside from perhaps Southern California. This high concentration, though, wasn't totally unexpected.
4: We did anticipate that we might see cases earlier than other parts of the country just because of the history of a lot of travel between the Bay Area and uh, Asia, including China.
0: Dr. Sarah Cody, the director of Santa Clara County's Public Health Department. And that high travel she mentioned? It's spurred on by the region's large Chinese population.
4: So, in some ways, we weren't surprised here in Santa Clara County when we had some of the first cases.
0: She says the county activated its Public Health Emergency Operations Center even before those first cases were reported. And between here and there, a lot of work has been done.
4: It's been very intense, to be honest, over mm. the last over the last few weeks. We still have a whole team that's following our two cases that are isolated. We have a whole team that's talking to providers all day. There's a whole other team that's just monitoring the contacts as well as the travelers that are arriving. So that in itself is a pretty big body of work. Then we have another team that's thinking about what might this look like for the healthcare system? How would we need to support the healthcare system? How would we need to support schools or other partners? And of course, we continue to have a huge presence with our communications team.
0: As a reporter, I can attest to that last bit. Thanks for taking my calls, communications team. So, certainly a busy time if you work for a county health department, but what about us civilians? What do we need to know about coronavirus? And what should we be doing? For some answers, I sat down with Dr. Sarah Cody, as well as our next guest, Dr. Charles Chu, a professor of laboratory medicine and infectious disease at the University of California at San Francisco. Now, my idea for this conversation was to hold a lightning round session of Coronavirus do's and don'ts, trues and falses, just a a quick, snappy way to find out everything we need to know about the illness. So, Um, so well, let's just listen to hear how that went. Uh, All right. All right, Dr. Cody, we're going to start with you. True or false? The coronavirus is more dangerous than the flu?
4: I can't answer that.
0: Didn't start uh, great.
4: That is not a true/false question, <laughs> Doctor Chu. Back to you.
0: <laughs> and I had to fall back for a second. Let's get that one. Bad question. Bad. Bad host. Fire the host. Please. Don't let him work in this town again. All right. Let's try the to... reason it's not a true or false question is well, the answer just isn't quite that simple. Is it more deadly? Less deadly? It all just sort of depends on how you define the word deadly. For a real answer, you kind of have to dig into the numbers. So let's do that. So far in the U.S. alone, more than 10,000 have died from the flu this season. Compare that to the now just over 2,000 who have died of coronavirus worldwide, the vast majority in China. So the flu, it's clear, has taken far more lives in the U.S. and worldwide. But that's just so far the potential reach of the coronavirus still poses a hefty risk. We know that in part because of two key metrics, which right now are pointing in a dangerous direction. That would be the virus's fatality rate and its rate of transmission. And while not entirely understood, both seem to be at least somewhat higher than the seasonal flu. Here now is Dr. Charles Chu, the UCSF professor I mentioned before, who's joining
1: us for this segment does appear to be more deadly than influenza. It might be anywhere from 10 to 100 times more deadly. So it's, it appears to be intermediate in its severity of disease between influenza, the seasonal influenza that we encounter every every year, and SARS. So, to break it down, coronavirus, likely more deadly than
0: the flu, but less deadly than SARS, potentially more infectious than both. With all those cheery thoughts in mind, let's try to get that Q and A session back on track to find out what our role in all this might be. Okay, coronavirus Q and A, take two. All right, let's try this again. All right, Doctor True, true or false? The coronavirus is related to SARS.
1: That is true. It it is also in the same family of viruses of which SARS is a member. Um, The closest, the closest coronavirus by sequence. To this coronavirus, novel coronavirus is SARS coronavirus, so it is a re- it can be considered as a relative of SARS. All right, uh, Dr. Cody, true or false? The coronavirus
0: is spreading widely through the Bay Area right now. False. And Dr. Cody, true or false? Visiting Chinatown puts you at more risk of coronavirus. That is false.
4: the The risk of coronavirus has to do with one's travel history, whether you've recently been to an area of the world where the virus is uh, widely circulating, or whether you've recently been around. Uh, someone who is uh, ill with the coronavirus.
0: And Dr. Chu, true or false, the coronavirus is definitely going to become a global pandemic?
1: Um, I would say false, and that's because of the uh, word definitely.
0: So there's still a lot of unknown here?
1: Yes, it's because we still have a lot of questions as to, um, you know, how the extent of infection, how transmissible the virus is, and um, and so far all um, Uh, all estimates on whether or not this virus will spread globally to become a pandemic uh, are really uh, predictions. Mm. All right, let's hit the do's and don'ts for Bay Area residents with regards to
0: coronavirus. Dr. Cody, do or don't panic? Uh,
4: Don't panic, but do stay informed.
0: Don't panic, but do stay informed. Would you second that, Dr. Chu? Absolutely. Dr. Cody, do or don't go outside?
4: Do go outside, you're in California.
0: (laughs) Time to enjoy life. Dr. Cody, do or don't buy a mask?
4: don't buy a mask unless you're ill and uh, need to protect uh, others around you from spreading your infection
0: and would that would that answer change if there was coronavirus being spread widely in the region that you're in let's say that you're in Wuhan China then would it make sense to buy a mask uh,
4: it, it might but you would need to be wearing a fit tested a particular kind of mask that's fit tested to to protect you and I, I just wanted to want to observe that even at the height of influenza season and that is where we are right now there's no recommendation by the centers for disease control or anyone else for people to uh, wear masks
0: Mm, so even against the flu it's not something that we're recommended to use all right good to keep in mind dr chu do or don't
1: wash your hands Uh, do definitely wash your hands Um, that's most likely the most common um, mode of transmission for coronaviruses as well as uh, respiratory viruses in general
0: all right. And finally, do or don't head straight to the doctor if you suspect that you have the coronavirus.
4: If you suspect you might have the coronavirus, we recommend that you make a phone call first uh, unless you're seriously ill and need immediate medical care.
0: Because the fear is you might spread it within the doctor's office unwittingly. All right. And uh, Dr. Chu, if this was the only piece of coronavirus media that somebody was going to come into contact with in the month of February, what is the one point that you would want to make sure that they have?
1: I, I think the one point is that this coronavirus is, is not, to the best of our knowledge, is not in circulating in the United States. So uh, do not panic, uh, and yet um, take steps to protect yourself, common-sense steps, common steps such as washing your hands to protect yourself from becoming infected in general from uh, these diseases.
0: And Dr. Cody, what is the second point you'd want them to have?
4: I'm going to have to second wash your hands.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, rules to live by. All right, thank you both. Once again, that was Dr. Sarah Cody, the director of Santa Clara County's Public Health Department, and Dr. Charles Chu, a professor of laboratory medicine and infectious disease at the University of California, San Francisco. One last quick tip from them, no matter where you live, your county health department will almost certainly have a whole lot more information about the coronavirus available on its website. All right, so hearing there from two sober-minded health professionals, hopefully that helps put into perspective where the real challenges lay ahead as we face down the coronavirus. But no matter how rational we want to get about all this, no matter how many numbers we may crunch, and no matter how many bar graphs we may compare, you know, epidemic, pandemic, these are scary words, and it can be easy to get swept away in the fear. So, now to the next how-to portion of today's show, how to deal with that coronavirus fear and its consequences. For the rest of the program, we're going to be switching gears a little bit, moving now instead to an extended interview with two very qualified guests on those questions. That would be Roxanne Cohen-Silver. She's a professor of psychological science, public health, and medicine at the University of California, Irvine, and has studied the psychological toll of health scares in the past. Professor Silver, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also welcoming on Sherry Wang. She's a professor of counseling psychology at Santa Clara University and wrote an op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle recently that is very relevant to some of the challenges that we're going to be discussing here today. Uh, So Sherry Wang, welcome to the program as well.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: So I want to start with you, Professor Silver. You studied the impact of the 2014 Ebola scare, which had tremendous consequences obviously tremendous and tragic consequences in many african countries uh, in the countries where it spread but no nearly no impact at all here in the us yet the fear from the ebola virus that was very real here in the us so what did you learn about what was driving that fear
5: one of the things that we saw about the ebola virus was that there was widespread media reporting of the deaths and in Africa, but it led to almost nonstop reporting in the United States that was uh, disproportionate to the actual fear of people contracting Ebola in the United States. And we found, my colleagues and I found, that those individuals who were engaged a lot with the media reporting about the ebola scare were more likely to worry about contracting the virus themselves were more likely to fear uh, others who might have the virus and i think we saw some instances of what might be considered panic there were closures in schools and there were there was concern about people who were flying on airplanes and all of that appeared to be disproportionate to the actual risk
0: so the basic equation, it sounds like you uncovered, was the more media you get, the more fearful, the more anxious you get as well.
5: Yes, that, that was clearly what we saw in our nationally representative sample of individuals who we studied in right after the intense media exposure in the fall of 2014.
0: And I know that you are not studying the coronavirus in particular, but it does seem like we're seeing some parallels to that right now. What is it about diseases, pandemics, epidemics? What is it about this particular kind of scare that spurs so much fear in the general public?
5: Well, the coronavirus is actually unique right now because we have so little information about the ways in which it is spreading we have very little information about the scope of the problem internationally there's some suspicion that the numbers are being uh, hidden in some ways so there's an enormous amount of ambiguity and during that period of time where there is lots of ambiguity it leads to rumor transmission uh... conspiracy theories and so we, we because we don't have a lot of clear um authentic information about what's going on individuals could be more susceptible to media uh, hypes about such a, uh, a spread it, it's very very clear that this is a serious and real problem mostly appears to be in mainland China so the the fear in mainland china is real what we're seeing here though is an enormous amount of ambiguity and uh, a rather low risk in north america
0: so i guess it just speaks to that very typical human proclivity for thinking the worst when you know the least you know when when there are so many question marks out there we do have the tendency to just fill in all the blanks with the worst possible answers
5: well, perhaps, or we're more susceptible to rumor and unsubstantiated information. That's one of the risks here. Uh, in the, uh, during the Ebola scare in the United States, people were pretty clear about their low risk. Uh, over time, the media provided very, very clear information about the relatively or, or actually very low risk in the United States. And so with a lot of accurate information, individuals can, uh, w- will not panic, will not uh, worry uh, on, uh, um, without cause. In this particular case, we are in a situation where there is so little information, there's so little accurate information, that it can lead to uh, fears of the worst.
0: Hmm. And when we talk about this increased anxiety and fear, how is that manifesting in people's lives? Is this having consequences for how people go about their lives? I mean, are they are they afraid to go outside? What, what does this really mean for people?
5: Well, some people, certainly individuals who are exhibiting a great deal of anxiety, may in fact choose not to go out, uh, to, not to um, go into large groups of people, uh, we see many people, at least uh, in Southern California, I've seen a number of people wearing masks. These are activities that are are undoubtedly amplified by fear that might be coming from uh, increased media attention to this issue.
0: All right. Well, we're going to keep you on the line and uh, jump back into that topic in just a second. But we are going to switch gears right now to another topic in this segment. That is, how to deal with another consequence of this fear we're seeing, discrimination against Asian residents. We have reports now of Uber drivers refusing service to Asian riders, as well as instances of racially motivated harassment and outright assaults. Just to bring in a quick example of what we're talking about here, I spoke earlier with Alex Kwan, who heads a San Francisco nonprofit and has been organizing a charitable drive to send relief supplies over to China. He told me about one incident involving a friend of his.
5: Like my friend was sick in, the, in San Francisco for a couple of days. She was wearing mask in order to prevent spreading out the virus. It's like a general flu or quote, but then people in the bus would say, like, why are you wearing
0: mask?" So again, here we have this woman not infected with coronavirus. She caught attention because of her decision to wear a mask. And he says, Alex Kwan says, those people on the bus got quite aggressive.
5: Yeah, and yell at her like, why are you wearing a mask? Like, this is not China. Yeah, like, like she feel bad. She does not even wearing mask now.
0: And for Kwan, this all raises a question.
5: I don't know why Asian are being blamed on the coronavirus.
0: A question that a lot of people are asking right now as well well it seems like the masks have become a focal point for a lot of this harassment and I think that could be something that we could discuss a little bit later on Uh, but let's bring in our other guest now again that's Sherry Wang professor of counseling psychology at Santa Clara University Uh, so uh, professor Wang you wrote an opinion piece for the San Francisco Chronicle offering some advice on how to deal with these incidents of harassment Uh, And uh, we're going to go through that advice in just one second. But before we get into that, I'm curious, what prompted you to write that piece?
2: I wrote that piece, actually, after I had been speaking a lot and writing about um, how much the coronavirus is actually... Um, similar to a lot of other infectious diseases in our past and how much we have racialized actually infectious diseases um, societally, right? I mean, we we actually have always racialized it towards people of color and recently with um, Asian, um, black, and Latinx communities because it's easier actually to, to pinpoint it that way. And so I think we have to name racism and anti-immigrant, right, xenophobia, sentiments that are present with coronavirus as well as all of the other infectious diseases diseases that have been um, recent. So thinking about SARS, for example, swine flu, um, MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, I mean, even the name of it. So MERS has actually been um, cited as an example in the World Health Organization as what not to do, Mm. what not to call a disease because you're really stigmatizing a region of the country and then therefore the people there. And so the naming of it too is very meaningful in terms of how it really blames a particular group of people and makes people scared of that.
0: Right. And I think that there was some debate about whether or not this should even be referred to as the Wuhan coronavirus or whether simply coronavirus would suffice. So that naming has consequences.
2: Yeah, well, actually, Wuhan virus is problematic. Right. And So mm-hmm. I think the World Health Organization recently said they're renaming it to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, Covid because the the co C O V I is for the coronavirus and then the D is for the disease I think mm. and then 19 for the year so that people are not we're not perpetuating kind of racism and stereotyping because of examples like for example with swine flu naming it that way actually led to government I think the Egyptian government was that slaughtered um, pigs right so so that animals and people are also being differentially treated because of the naming of that.
0: Mm. And since we do have this pattern going back and even beyond uh, racism, we could also point to the AIDS epidemic and the way that uh, members of the LGBTQ community were marginalized and stigmatized because of that epidemic. So this is something that we see come up again and again. Why is this a pattern that we see? Is it simply just the simple equation of fear plus otherness equals marginalization or is there more to it?
2: We see this pattern coming up again and again because this is the racializing piece, right? And that um, it's always exotic, it's always foreign and we we like to assume that it's not gonna come from within us and so it's easier to scapegoat a group of people. Mm. And and there's no way we're not gonna think about that based on race or images of people who in some ways we deem to be outsiders, right? They Mm -hmm. shouldn't be here, they don't belong with us, they don't look like us, and so that's really a big part of the picture. We know, for example, with HIV right now that it's preventable, actually, Mm. and we also know that it's treatable, but actually we still see that people of color um, Communities are are still being disproportionately affected and are not still getting the access that white gay men are actually getting So race is there even when we have treatment
0: All right, so now let's uh, really dig into the how-to portion of this segment Uh, again This is how to bay area and uh, we're very lucky because you wrote uh, an opinion piece that is full of how-to's Literally telling people what to do if they do face this form of discrimination. Uh, Let's tick through a couple of the pieces of advice that you gave the number one piece of advice you gave was to document it uh, why why was that something important to address there
2: yeah documenting is really really important because i think there's legal consequences and particularly i think for the asian community in the context of racism and thinking about asians as a model minority right that that there's still the assumption that asians are not people of color actually and that re- asian americans don't are, are not susceptible to um, racism and and so I think even documentation is a form of resistance, right? For people to say this has happened, um, not just for the community itself, but for outsiders to recognize the ways in which racism really affects Asian Americans.
0: Now, you also discussed the in the moment response that people might give and this gets into a little bit of tricky territory because you never want to say that the person who is facing discrimination is the one who's responsible for making the situation better but you do have some advice for what people can do and uh, one of the, the big pieces that you say is that it's important for people to think about how they want to spend their energy whether or not it's worth their time to address this so talk a little bit about that.
2: Yes I mean when you're already being victimized um, thinking about people who are getting racial slights hurled at them and people who are Maybe even subtly experiencing forms of racism. It really is important then to decide what am I going to do to recover from this, and what am I going to do to protect myself. And so I think people of color also um, tend to have to be the ones to always educate um, about racism, right? Mm. And so because I'm thinking about it from a racism perspective, and because I'm thinking about how much of the coronavirus or um, COVID-19, right? How much of that is is based on rumors and conspiracy theories and ambiguity that the task of educating falls on the people who are victims. And Mm. so that could be helpful if it's empowering for you, but if being angry is empowering for you, is shutting down is powerful for you, then I think people should do whatever they need to to be able to recover.
0: And you mentioned that you even had a little bit of an educational spiel, spiel written up for uh, such situations.
2: I did, yes. And it really is educating people that um, a disease is not based on race or national origin, right? It maybe came, is linked to a particular region of the country, um, but, but actually it's not linked to people based on your racial profiling. And so dropping that tidbit of knowledge, doing a mic drop even, right, with mm. some flair and then walking away. <laughs> if it so, If you choose and if it so empowers you.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you have you used that line? Is this something you've done?
2: I haven't so far because I don't think anything has warranted me to have to say anything. But I think mm-hmm. um, like the the clip that you played earlier or like like what you had mm-hmm. um, shown us earlier, um, I am Asian and I'm also conscientious if I sniff or if I cough or if I need to blow my nose in public. Now I'm very hypervigilant about how people may be seeing me. So mm-hmm. I'm very aware and I, I have to be braced for that. So there's not only a... A piece of fear physically for my own health, but also a fear of the social ramifications from the people around me.
0: Right. And you also raised the difference between uh, the term that we often hear microaggressions and uh, dis- distinguishing that from out and out racist attacks. And, you know, when you mentioned that uh, a second ago, the, the, the feeling that you feel extra scrutiny when you sniff or cough, How do you walk around in the world where you do need to make that delineation? I I guess what I'm trying to get at is expand a little bit more on how that impacts your movement about in the world when you do have that running in the back of your mind all the time that you, you may be subject to that extra scrutiny.
2: I think the reality is that everybody um, who is Asian is being profiled right now worldwide. And so the microaggressions t- to me right now feel like a basic level of it's just there. And so I don't love it. I, I feel badly about it, um, you know, that if I were to sneeze or, or when I have, right, seemed like maybe I'm, I'm not as healthy, um, maybe somebody will shift or move away from me. And I, I, I can maybe justify that or contextualize that in ways that are very different when somebody is saying something very racist, um, that there, there is no ambiguity about that anymore. It's 100 percent directed at me and it's meant to be hurtful. Um, and so I, I think it's also about then the interpretation of it and and seeing what we're willing to do with that ambiguity.
0: Hmm. Another quick point that I want to hit is, uh, you mentioned that it's important to find support, and I think that that's good advice for anybody, but I suppose in, uh, in these times, especially relevant.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to be able to have a community to go back to, to say, this is what happened to me. And then hopefully your community will be like, that is so wrong. Mm-hmm. Because chances are, we are we're social creatures. So when we are excluded or ostracized, what we're going to do is think to ourselves, what did I do wrong? What is wrong with me? And there's nothing wrong with you because you were actually a victim of racism and xenophobia and somebody's racial profiling, knowing then that that you don't own that. That's on that person. We need community to remind ourselves and one another of that.
0: So in this discussion, since we brought it up a little bit earlier, I, I also do want to address the reaction that many people wearing masks are facing to those masks. We heard a second ago about a woman who was confronted just because that she, she was wearing a mask, and Uh, we didn't play the clip of it, but when I was speaking to Alex Kwan, he found this absolutely bewildering. He was expressing to me, you know, somebody is wearing a mask. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing to stay healthy and to prevent the spread of disease. So why is somebody being targeted for taking those steps? And I think that this speaks to the very different ways that masks are thought about here in the U.S. by many people and the way that they're thought about elsewhere in the world. So, uh, Professor Wing, maybe you could uh, address that a little bit. Well, the
2: irony is that people wear the masks in Asia as a as, as a preventative health strategy, where when you're sick, it's actually out of conscientiousness. You don't want other people to get sick. Um, and also people wear it when they are riding on their scooters or, or out and about in, in certain public places where they don't want to breathe in pollution or breathe in bad, bad air. So in hospitals, you see lots of people wearing it really to protect themselves um, and or protect other people. So it's actually an effort that's, that's taken um, on a proactive level, whereas here it's looked at as, oh my gosh, you have a disease. And so there's something about it that's also about culturally not knowing the reason people wear masks. And then therefore it's looked at as this really exotic behavior that must be a bad
0: thing. Right. And maybe another thing that people don't quite realize is it's seen as a form of politeness mm-hmm. to be wearing that mask. Uh, explain that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a conscientiousness. It would be like, in the U.S., if we sneezed, we would want to cover our mouth with our hands. So that is what a mask is like. You are covering your face so that if you see, sneeze, right? So that's even like one step earlier. Like, if I sneeze, I don't want it to disrupt the people around me. Yeah. And so that is actually looked at as like, oh, you're a diseased person. Avoid, run away. When, mm-hmm. when it's actually being very conscientious and considerate of the people around you.
0: All right. Well, uh, any other points that we missed that you want to hit on before we uh, move on in the show?
2: Yeah, I think something important to think about is confirmation bias. And in times of ambiguity, we are going to look for the things that confirm what we already assume. Mm. And part of how we have treated infectious diseases have been racialized. And so we are going to look for things that are going to be blaming China, blaming people of China, blaming Asian people, blaming animals. So we're going to look for these things. And so I think part of that is training ourselves also to look for other counter narratives and examples so that we can have a broader scope of understanding because right now we don't know enough
0: Mm, all right so a lot of important words to live by right there i want to bring back uh, once again uh, professor roxanne cohen silver again she's professor of psychological science public health and medicine at the university of california at irvine and uh, continuing that theme we just heard a second ago of what we can do personally to address some of the fears that we may feel in ourselves what advice you, you already mentioned the role that media plays in driving some of this fear. What personal responsibility do we have to confront our own fear and manage it?
5: I think it's really important that we seek out accurate information from trusted sources like the CDC or the World Health Organization. Those organizations will be providing very clear guidance as more information about the transmission and the mechanisms of transmission become clear. It's important, I believe, that we stay informed about the science and stay away from the sensationalized reporting.
0: Mm. And so that is good media hygiene in a certain way. Is it? Does it almost speak to a certain habit of mind? I mean, is there a way in which we can habituate ourselves to constantly be worrying about this, constantly checking our phone? Is is, is that a, a bad habit you're seeing as well?
5: That's, uh, y- yes, that is a habit that I would encourage people to try to break. We see that individuals who continue to engage with media and aren't learning anything new but are just seeing the same things over and over again that may be sensationalized, that may be hyping that may be inaccurate, uh, that kind of constant vigilance is unlikely to be healthy and, in fact, may be unhealthy. Instead, I'm suggesting to stay informed by seeking out information from trusted sources that will have the science, that will enable us to learn what to do, what not to do. And that information is unlikely to be rep- sort of repetitious. It's it's going to be updated as new information comes to the fore by the scientists who are studying this virus. Mm. I think it's very important to moderate the amount of media one is exposed to about this, uh, this outbreak. And I, I wouldn't encourage non-stop vigilance about the reporting, because at this point now, the, given the ambiguity, there's really nothing new that people are learning on a minute-by-minute minute basis.
0: Just uh, on a personal note, Professor Silver, how often are you checking the reports? Is this something that's uh, weighing on your mind at all?
5: I'm checking uh, authoritative sites about the number of cases, but uh, and I'm checking on, a I would say, daily or uh, couple of times a week basis from the med- high, high visibility medical journals that are reporting online information that they're learning. But beyond that, I'm not engaging in any media about this.
0: Probably wise, probably wise. Well, we are just about out of time, but I want to hit one more question before we go with both, both of you. And to set that up, uh, I'm going to refer back to the Individual that we introduced at the top of the show, that would be Carl Chan, president of the Oakland Chinatown Chamber of Commerce. He once again is the one who organized that informal meeting to help dispel rumors about Chinatown and get people to come back to patronize the businesses there. Obviously a lot of distress in uh, that business community at the moment. Well, something interesting happened in the days following that meeting. After several media outlets released reports on that meeting, there was a big response.
3: The last few days, Uh, We actually do gain so much support from everyone, from all different communities.
0: He says he received a mix of texts, emails and calls from people of all backgrounds throughout the Bay Area.
3: They said, you know, they actually, they did not realize how bad or how much impact in our community until now.
0: And a lot of people told him they're now planning to pay Oakland Chinatown a visit to show support.
3: Because, you know, uh, our community here in the Bay Area, Uh, I think, you know, we are are one of the most diverse community in the Bay Area. So people understand how to support each other. So for all the support uh, we will be receiving, I am sure that, you know, we'll hopefully hopefully we'll be back to normal as soon as possible.
0: And so I think it's fair to say that that's another side of the Bay Area that's worth acknowledging, the side that will look for ways to offer support in times of adversity. So the last question that I want to put to both of you, and we'll start with Professor Silver what can be done to make our better angels triumph in all this? What are the habits or what are the steps that we should be taking to make sure that our response is as positive as it can be? Professor Silver.
5: I think we should try to shut down rumors and conspiracy theories about the transmission of the virus. I think that we should make sure that that, in, that the information, the scientific information that's being learned is transmitted to the community as quickly as possible and with accurate information, individuals should be very clearly not avoiding the community.
0: All right. And uh, Professor Wang, what would you add to that?
2: I think this is a time for solidarity, for our communities to come together, um, and, and for us to really think about the ways in which we're exoticizing this disease as, as some something that's from other people who look a part- particular way. And I think if we can all step in and recognize that we are all complicit in that, as an Asian person myself, that I might flinch a little bit too when I see another Asian person sneeze, and I need to check on that. I need to check with my own bias with that and to be able to speak out so that when things like that happen where where people are perpetrating rumors and conspiracy theories, that we can be like, that is actually not true. And we can intervene for each other because I think because this is affecting people who look the most like me and communities um, that look like me, I, I in some ways can't control how much media access I have to it because it's just happening all around me and then mm. so anything I'm following in social media that's not even about the disease but that's about my community Asian American community I'm gonna see that and so in some ways if other folks if people of color if white allies can step in and say hey that's not true stop racially profiling I think that would be really really powerful because we we needed to have done that with Ebola I mean that w- there was a term called Ebola racism and people who are not black needed to, and should have, and, and hopefully did step in and be like, hey, this is, don't call this a, a black racism. It, know that when you call it a black issue or black disease, that is racist. And so I think this is a time for all of us to come together. And so hearing about um, kind of the, the events in Oakland and in Chinatown, that's really good because that's not just Asians supporting Chi- Chinatown, it's the community coming together and all of our diversity to support people um, and collectively fighting against the disease.
0: All right, and so hopefully we see more of that as the weeks go by. Uh, Once again, we're going to sign off now. We've been speaking to Roxanne Cohen-Silver, Professor of Psychological Science, Public Health, and Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Professor Silver, thanks so much for your time.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Also had on Sherry Wang, Professor of Counseling Psychology at Santa Clara University. You can find her op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle. Just uh, get on the Googles. You'll find it right there. Professor Wang, thank you as well. Thank you. final point before we go. Obviously, at the time of posting this edition, we're offering this how-to perspective to a Bay Area that has yet to see widespread cases of coronavirus. But as we've discussed, that could change at some point. So if it does, we'll of course need to make a new episode. You know, how to deal with the coronavirus that's actually here. And that would be very unfortunate, and fingers crossed, hopefully we get lucky. Hopefully that never happens. But if it does, one thing I can say for sure, even with all the unknowns ahead, on that new episode, panicking will not be on the to-do list, just as it's not right now. This has been another edition of How To Bay Area. You can find past episodes online on the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS, I'm Keith Menconi. Thanks for listening.